So a couple years ago, I went with uh, my family and the Bowers, and we were going to Gettysburg on a little vacation where we were going all around America and, and all sorts of, of different places, and it was pretty neat. It was kind of the history of the United States. And when we got to Gettysburg, we were at a place where um, it was called Pickett's Charge, which is really the last chance that the, the South had to go and fight the North and, and in, in Northern Territory. And they were going to go and they were going to charge the Northern lines. And this was the closest that they got over. They actually got over the lines, got to the cannons of the North, but they uh, ran out of ammunition. And the guy that there was a monument there was a man named General uh, Louis Armistead. And when I looked at that monument, I thought that name just looks really, really familiar to family names that I have. And so I went right after we went to Gettysburg and I started looking this up and uh, it was General Louis Armistead was an ancestor of mine. I was it, it was a name that sounded real familiar and it really was. It was one of my ancestors and it was pretty neat to see him. And then I started looking. We had already left Gettysburg and I was uh, I'm kind of bummed out about that because there's a nice statue, just this huge statue in Gettysburg, and a great story about General Armistead. And the story is almost exactly what you just saw there. It's a little less uh, Hollywood acting, I guess, but it was General Armistead, and he is talking with a captain. And what's going on right there, and this is the monument that, that dis depicts what happens, he's going over enemy lines, he gets shot three times, and... At the time of his death, he is getting full clarity about what's going on in life. And one of the issues that he's having, one of, one of the regrets that he has is the general on the other side, General Hancock, was his best friend. And the two of them, they worked together, they went to West Point together, they worked together out in California. Hancock was from Pennsylvania, Armistead was from North Carolina, but they found themselves on opposing sides of the war. And he goes there and he finds out, as he goes over enemy lines, he finds out that his best friend and him were both shot. And both probably not going to make it. Hancock actually ends up making it, but what he does, and this is the picture that you see here in this monument, is he's taking his pocket watch and he's asking them to give it to Hancock's wife. And he's taking his Bible that he has. Ooh, he's taking his Bible that he has with him, and he wants to give it to Hancock's wife. And what he wants them to know is, he's sorry that all this became in between them. His best friend, his best friend that got him through losing a wife, his best friend that got him through losing a child, was all made up in this folly of war. It says, and on the monument it says. Underneath it says, friend to friend, a brotherhood undivided. General Lewis Armistead the Union Cap and Union Captain Henry Bingham following Pickett's charge. A memorial depicts the mortality or the mortally... General Armistead trusting personal items, a pocket watch and a Bible to Captain Bingham to give to General Armistead's old friend, Union General Winfield Hancock. This memorial is to convey the sacred bonds of fraternity, mercy, and brotherly love that transcend man's folly of war. 
Look at the impression that this monument makes on us. When we see that we sometimes have these little quarrels that we have among us. And sometimes the quarrels can get so big that it divides us to where brother is fighting brother. And as we just finished, uh, yesterday was 9-11. And I remember at 9-11, it seemed like the country got so close together after that. We found that we are all brothers and sisters in this country together. And yet as time goes on, sometimes we start spreading apart. And it's good to have these impressions, these reminders of what happens when brothers and brothers versus brother split up. What happens when friends divide? And so it's something that's pretty neat in my life that I look at and say, all right, an ancestor of mine in his dying, in his dying wish wanted to remember, hey, it's not worth brothers fighting brothers. It's not worth friends dividing. So I want you to think about impressions that you leave on others. What kind of impression is made on others when you first get and meet somebody? Is it a good impression where they want to get to know you better, where they want to get to, to know more about you? Or is it a bad impression where they hope never to interact with you again? A lot of times our first impressions can mean so much. And what about the impression that you leave your family? What do you what do you think about what are your children going to think about you in your life? Did you spend time with them? Did you love them? Did they know that you cared about them? What kind of impression are you leaving to your family? And children, what kind of impression are you leaving to your, your parents? Do they know you love them? Do they know you care about them? And then we go even deeper in what kind of spiritual impression do we leave? What kind of spiritual footprint are we leaving on people's lives? When people see us, do they know that we're followers of Christ? Do they know we're servants of the Most High God? Do they know by the actions that we're living, that's the impression we are leaving upon others? Last week we talked about Paul going to the city of Thessalonica. And when he goes to the city of Thessalonica, he's there for less than a month. It says three Sabbath days that he was there. And he's preaching to the people and he's showing them who Jesus Christ is. And the people are listening and they're liking what Paul has to say, and they're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they are ready for him to come back and take them to heaven with them. But in those three short weeks, or that less than a month that he's there, people are jealous, and in the middle of the night, he has to run away with his, with his companions, Silas and Timothy, and whatever other companions that they had there, because... There's so much pressure. And so for 18 months, Paul is wondering what has happened to this church. And he's probably feeling pretty down because these people actually were listening to what he was saying and they were loving the message that Paul was giving and they were loving the Lord. And he had to leave so quickly after that. And then so he's trying, he doesn't have a chance to get back to him, but he sends Timothy. And Timothy is one of Paul's right-hand man. And he goes down there, and Timothy comes back 18 months later, and he tells Paul, 
things are going incredibly well with the Thessalonians. And Paul is just completely overjoyed that this little place that he left, or it's not a little place, it's a, actually a large, 200,000 uh, uh, people are in Thessalonica, but this church that he was at for so little time is actually thriving. And they're loving the Lord. And so what he does is he writes a letter to them. All three of them actually write a letter. It's, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they write this letter to the Thessalonians. And one of the neat things about the Thessalonian letter is this is probably the first written word of the New Testament. It was written before any of the Gospels were written. It was written before any of the other letters were written, except possibly Galatians, but most people think Thessalonians was the first letter written that we have in the New Testament. So it's kind of interesting to see what was going on, because this is a mere 20 years since Jesus has resurrected from the dead. 20 years and the people in Thessalonica are ready for Jesus to come back. And so grab your Bible and open up to Thessalonians chapter 1. And that's where we're going to be for this morning. In Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. The first thing we notice here is it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all three of them that went there and they helped start this church are writing to this group. And what does he call them? Does he call them the city of Thessalonica? Does he call them our friends? He was staying with a guy named Jason over there. Is he just saying, Jason, this is a letter to you? No, he is using to the church in Thessalonica. So the first words penned in the New Testament to the church of Thessalonica. Does God love our, his church? Does Jesus love his church? Absolutely. And whenever the, these letters are written, they're written to the church. And when we speak to you today, we're speaking to the church. There's something incredibly important about the church. We can all have our own relationship with Jesus Christ. We can have our relationship with God. But what God wants and what Jesus wanted was for the church to come together. And as we go throughout this series of Thessalonians, we'll see how important the church was. And next week, we're going to see exactly how, it, how incredibly important the church was together. But when Jesus talked about the church, he didn't mention the church many times. But after Peter declares Jesus as, as the Son of God, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says this about the church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, And I tell you, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On, on what Peter said and what Peter's message that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus Christ is going to build something called a church, a gathering of his people, a gathering of his believers, and the gates of Hades are not going to overcome this church. And what's happening in this very early church of Thessalonica Satan wants to tear it down. And so what's happening is Paul's not hardly there for any time at all, less than a month, and he gets shoved off. They don't have the holy scriptures that we have that we can look at and read about. But the church is thriving. And the people are we're continuing to, to preach the message of Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell cannot overcome what's happening with the Lord's people here. 
And Paul couldn't be any more thankful or any more grateful for what's happening with these Thessalonians that he left 18 months ago. In Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the key words that pop out in here. Faith, hope, and love. Have you ever heard that before? 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, right? These great virtues. And Paul talks about faith, hope, and love all the time through the, through the Scriptures. These are the greatest virtues that we can have. And these Thessalonians, these people that were listening to the faith for less than a month are exhibiting all these qualities of faith, hope, and love. And what kind of faith do they have? He says, we remember the Lord your God for your work produced by faith. And so what do works mean whenever we look at uh, the works that we have? A lot of times we, we look at our works and our works are, are good deeds that we, that we give to God. And so some of our works are coming here to church and listening and, and going to Bible class after that. That's part of our works. Those that are in the nursery right now and in Bible hour and they're teaching, those are great works that are happening. When we sing to God, those are works to God where we're singing praise to him because he tells us to sing with a, with a melody in our heart, right, to him. So these are our works, but works mean nothing if they're not produced by faith. And that's what Paul is telling them is they have these great works produced by faith. And so whenever we come to church, if we have the have works that are produced by faith, we're not coming because we're trying to check off a list. We're coming because we want to learn as much as we can about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to grow close to him and we want to be a part of a church with him. And when we sing, it's not that we're singing because we're commanded to sing, but we sing because we have such joy in our hearts and we want to praise our God in some way that he gave us this incredible way to use the gift of song and praise him in that way. And when we teach others about Jesus Christ, we're not teaching just because we have to teach, but we're teaching because we want others to know about this incredible message that we've learned, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so these works that they had are produced by faith. And the works that we have, hopefully they're produced by faith. And then what does he say? He says, he says, your labor prompted by love. What does that mean when we think of works and labor that they seem a little similar, but, but works are the things that we do, but labor is a little bit more intensive. And so when I think about a labor, labor produced by love, I think about... Uh, we got, the, we got the Applegates. They're teaching the, the, the third through fifth grade right now. And Samantha is a teacher. And she's teaching our kids. I would imagine we have a whole lot of teachers that are here that probably the last thing you want to do on the weekend is spend a lot of time with kids, right? You've done that all week and you're kind of tired. But a labor of love says, I want to use the gifts that God's given us. And I want to teach these kids. God's given me the gift to teach. And I want to teach these kids. And we have so many in our congregation that are teachers. And yet they continue to give back. And they continue to teach our children. 
Labor of love means that when things get hard, we do it anyway. My last activity as a youth minister was, was a, a work camp, and it was the week before Jaime came, and I was, was a little bitter that Jaime wasn't here one week earlier because I was getting up, and it was a hot August uh, day. I think it was August. Yeah, it was late July, early August, and we didn't finish our house in time. And so I was thinking, all right, we've got to come back and finish painting this house. We were running a little bit late behind time. And so I had to go to each of the students and see if they would give one more day. And I had enough students that said, yeah, we can do it. We can come one more day and finish painting in the hot August sun. And that was a labor of love. When things are tough and we do them anyway because we love God and we love God's people, that is a labor of love. And that is what these Thessalonians had. They were suffering. They were getting persecuted. Satan was trying to stop them, but they had a labor of love. And why did they have this labor of love? Because they had an endurance inspired by the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ's return. They're doing all this stuff because they were ready for Jesus to come home. And right now it's been 2,000 years since Jesus has returned. And, and we're wondering, when are you coming back? Jesus, when are you coming back? If you're in my Revelation class, you'll know the answer to that. It's, it's uh, the people are asking, when are you going to come, Lord? When are you going to finally finish this all? And God will tell them, when my full number are in. And so God is patient, a lot more patient than us. But the Thessalonians right then, it's been just 20 years and they're thinking, all right, God's going to come back anytime. Jesus is going to return anytime. And so we are going to endure this persecution, this suffering, this laboring, because he's coming back soon. I saw a quote by C.S. Lewis uh, this week in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are not that we are made for another world. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. And the Thessalonians got it. They realized everything that's going on in this world might be difficult but they're made for another world. If we try to satisfy our thing, ourselves with, for the things of this world, we'll never be satisfied. Rockefeller, which was one of the richest uh, people to ever live in the United States, he was asked once, how much is enough money? And what's Rockefeller say? Just a little bit more. We're never satisfied enough. It's because we don't live in a world that will satisfy us completely. We live for a world that is going to satisfy us, but it's when Christ returns. And so until he returns, until he comes, we wait with a faith produced by, our works produced by faith. We have labor produced by love and a hope that endures the day until he returns. And so if we're made for another world, how do we continue to endure over this time? How do we continue to live for a world that is yet to come? Well, the Thessalonians did a good job of 
of this. In verse four, in verse four, it says, "For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because of our gospel came to you simply, not simply with words, but also with power, and with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction." When Paul told them about Jesus Christ, and they agreed that the scriptures did point to that the Messiah would have to die for them, and the Messiah was going to be resurrected. They didn't just all look at each other and agree, yes, that makes sense. But they were captured with the Holy Spirit. And, that Holy, and the Holy Spirit didn't just allow them to agree with the message, but it convicted their hearts to go out and change the way they were living. Go out and live for a different world. And so when we hear the message of Jesus Christ, when we come together as a church, we shouldn't just look around at each other and all just agree, says, yes, that was a good lesson. This was a good class. I agree with what the scriptures say. But we need to let the Holy Spirit work on our heart. It's not just agreement with the words that are said, but agreement in our action and allowing the Holy Spirit to work through our lives. They were chosen by God to do great things, to spread the message around Greece. And we are chosen by God, I think, to do great things in this community. We've talked about it over and over again of how God has placed us in this, in this particular place, in this neighborhood, between all the schools. And God, I think, wants us to allow the Holy Spirit to work within us so that we can shine around in this city, in this neighborhood, through these schools. That's what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. And we don't just need to sit there and agree that these are good ideas, but allow action to take place in our life. So how do we allow that action to take place in our life? In verse 6 it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia, Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only to Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Look, look at what they did. The message that they took. They didn't have Bibles to read. They might have had old script, uh, the Old Testament that they could go and look and, and see the prophecies that were answered. But they didn't have Scripture to read. They didn't have the New Testament to read. And so what did they have to do? They had to imitate what they saw Paul doing. And they know from Paul, Paul just came from Philippi when he got to, Thessalonia, or to Thessalonica. And Paul probably came beaten because in, Phil, in Philippi, he was arrested and he was beaten. So he might have come with a black eye and bruises and they realized this guy is doing everything for the gospel. And he wasn't working for money. He wasn't wanting anything from the Thessalonians. He was working on building tents. He was making his own money while he was there. And Paul was showing them that he was laboring in love. And that was the example that they set, that he set for them. And so they followed Paul's example. And when they followed Paul's example, the message only, not only went around Macedonia, where they are. Macedonia is the northern part of Greece. It also went to Achaia, which is the southern part of Greece. And what, what Paul is saying right here is, your, the message has rang out all over Greece. And not just over Greece, but 
everywhere. And maybe we think, well, Paul's being a little bit, uh, a little bit presumptuous that it's gone everywhere. But what are we reading right now? This message to the Thessalonians, where they're going through these sufferings because of their faith. And yet because of people like that, that continue to spread the faith, we can sit in this nice air-conditioned building, free of, uh, free of persecution, and we can worship our God because of what people like that did for us so long ago. Look at the impression that they have left for us and the impression that Paul left for them, that he would do anything for them. And unfortunately, he was, his time was cut short. So how can we look, how can we follow that example? I think you just got to start thinking of folks in your life that you know that exhibit incredibly strong Christian values. People that you know that are servants of the Most High God. One time I was talking in, in one of my youth classes and I asked the students and we were doing a lesson similar to this. And I said, tell me who is the greatest Christian example that you have. And one of the girls in the class uh, says to me, and I can't think of a greater uh, compliment, but she says, Rachel Kyles. And I know Rachel probably sits there and she knows her own faults and, her, and, her, and all that, but how incredible is it that a high school kid would say, you are the greatest example of the Christian faith. And you are the one that I want to emulate, Right? And why was that? Because from a little, when she was a little girl, Rachel spent time with her. And Rachel would spend time with all these girls as we did our We Care, we did our girls' clubs, and these kind of things. And there's so many folks in this room that I would say, you have been such an incredible influence in my life. And I have letters that are sitting in my office from people that have passed on, that wrote so many kind letters to me. And I use them as these examples that I follow. And I'm excited when one day, when he comes, I'm going to get to see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I'm going to get to see these folks. And all of us are going to get to see, uh, see, see our Lord, and we're going to get to see each other in our church because of our endurance of that hope. And so it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, it says, They tell you, they tell how you turn to God from idols. You serve the living and true God and wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who rescues us from the upcoming wrath. What happened with the Thessalonians? If you're in the Revelation class, you might notice, you might remember a video that we watched where the people would go to the marketplace. And when they got to the marketplace, a lot of times what they would have to do is to even enter in the marketplace. They had to give a little bit of incense in a, in a bowl and they would have to say, Caesar is Lord. Well, if Caesar is no longer your Lord, if you're no longer doing emperor worship, you're not welcome in the marketplace. And think of the Jewish uh, converts that came over to the faith. They no longer could work and trade and deal with their Jewish folks in the marketplace. 
I think about uh, an uncle of mine that told a story once that uh, my grandmother, she was, she was uh, half Irish, half Jewish, but her mother, who was Jewish, uh, died when she was really young, so she was raised by her uncle, who was, as far as I know, an Irish man. But he would go to the Jewish delis because he had a Jewish <laughs> child that he was raising, right? And he'd go to the no Jewish bakery. And I remember my uncle would say, on the Tuesdays, whenever they gave a discount to the to the Jewish folks, he'd go to the to there and get bagels at the bakery. Because he was going to claim that right there. And that's kind of what happened is, is the Jewish folks would go into the marketplace and because they were one and the same, they would claim their rights. Well, when you gave up your idols, when you gave up your family, you lost that right to work in the, go into the marketplace and to trade with your people. And life got hard. But they weren't going to be willing to live with these idols on this world because they were living for a hope of something better. And until he came, they were going to live life in a way that didn't look like the way that people are living in this world. They were no longer going to call Caesar Lord and they were no longer going to worship the gods of their fathers. And so their faith rang out through the world. I want you to think about what idols you have in your life right now. It's going to look different than the idols that they had. But I think our idols are anything that take away our time from our Lord. Our idols are things that, that, that maybe they're time killers. Maybe that's something that gives our allegiance to something other than our God. And are we going to be like the Thessalonians and say, I want to make an impression on this world. I want to make this lasting impression. When people see me, they can imitate me. And by that, they can receive the award reward of eternal life. What idols do you need to turn away from? The beauty in the, in the good news and the message of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is we all can change our ways right now we can be baptized into his death and we can be raised into his resurrection and we can live with this enduring hope just like the thessalonians did until our lord comes again and if we've already done that and we just need to repent of our sins we can repent of our sins and we can come back and we can start walking this straight and narrow and live a life until he comes if you have any need, please come while I stand and sing.